So I want to talk a few more aspects of general metta, and then I want to move into the area of compassion. There are these four Brahmaviharas, four divine abidings, kindness, compassion, joy, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And so um, I want to talk about compassion tonight some. But I want to begin with putting a bit of a a context around just to remind ourselves really why we're doing this and what we're doing. People will forget what you say and they'll forget what you do, but they won't forget how you made them feel. So all of our practice, whatever the kind of practice we may do, whatever our particular even traditions are, They're all in service of our waking up, of our complete possibility of complete freedom, awakening enlightenment. And what does that mean, freedom? And really it means freedom from, rather than awakening to something, because it isn't a something, it's simply freedom from the stressful angst that we experience when we're ego-bound, when we are conscious, self-conscious. There is, to, from a small through to a huge degree, of angst involved. And the freedom that we're promised that these practices enable us to or facilitate the, the availability is freedom from the state It's a state of perception. It isn't a place. It isn't an object. It's simply uh, the experiencing of a shift in perception which is then free of any angst whatsoever. Unity, (laughs) kingdom of heaven. And it's in such a state of great ease and freedom because there isn't a sense of self in those moments it's the self which generates words and thinking. And so there aren't words to describe it. So everybody goes along trying to describe things in non-words, you know, dew dropping off leaves and things like this. But it's <laughs> So whatever we're doing, it's in service of this. It's because this is deeply what we want. I mean, we want happiness, we want love, we want friendship, we want miscellaneous, but they're all expressions of and, and uh, leanings towards this deep, the deepest sense. And the thing about the Buddha is he, even though many such beautiful fruits are available along our way, ultimately this is what the Buddha taught and this is ultimately what it's all about. And when there is, when anyone experiences such a moment, and we've all experienced miscellaneous degrees of glimpses or moments of this lack of self-consciousness, complete ease. In an experience such as that, there is two things happening. One is clarity and understanding. It's like really deeply getting. It's like a, a waking up feeling of, oh, I really see clearly. And a feeling of um, profound caring. Profound n- Caring isn't even the right word to describe it because there isn't any separation then. Everything is felt as oneself. Everything is felt as precious. 
It isn't even the love kind of which is a subject-object relationship. It's even more uh, simple and profound than the word love, although that's often used. So there are these two flavors, clarity and understanding, and this heart that feels connected, connection, unification. A monk from the last century, Raw Pola Rahula, says, According to, to Buddhism, for a man to be perfect, there are two qualities that he should develop equally, compassion on one hand and wisdom on the other. Here, compassion represents love, charity, kindness, tolerance, and such noble qualities on the emotional side or qualities of the heart while wisdom would stand for the intellectual side or the qualities of the mind. If one develops only the emotional, neglecting the intellectual, one may become a good-hearted fool. While to develop only the intellectual side, neglecting the emotional may turn one into a hard-hearted intellect without feelings for others. Therefore, to be perfect, one has to develop both equally. That is the aim of the Buddhist way of life, in it, wisdom and compassion are inseparably linked together. And Arjan Sumedho lives in England, and many of you know, and many of you don't. He's in his 70s now, and he's an American monk, been a monk for 40 years or so in the uh, Thai forest tradition, says, Love is wisdom's natural radiance. In other words, when there is a state of wisdom and deep understanding, naturally there is this openness of heart. And so when you think about anyone you know who's wise, to whatever degree, they're also nice. They're also friendly. You don't just go to them because they're like this sort of severe, clear, empty wisdom. They also are friendly. They are totally open to you and you feel seen and cared for at the same time. They go together. In fact, it's said that wisdom without love isn't actually wisdom. And love without wisdom isn't actually love. You know, it's attached or desirous or some other limited, limited thing. They are, in their fullest expansion, both are necessary. Therefore, it's possible to encourage this facility of ours for freedom through one route or the other. We can develop wisdom, and we do. And our Vipassana practice is hugely about developing wisdom and understanding with a clear mind, taking apart the various behaviors and, and struggles that we have and seeing it clearly and finally. And then there's metta and the development of the tenderness and the kindness, which is wisdom's natural radiance. And both lead to each other. They aren't actually different at all, but just they're a different approach or a different mode or a different doorway. And some of us gravitate towards one, one doorway and some through the other, depending on our makeup and our wiring. But we find one leads to the other inevitably because they belong together inseparably. And for some of us who know that we gravitate towards one, one doorway, it's kind of quite useful and interesting to go the other way, even if it's not our first choice, to discover the familiarity and the value of both for the sake of balancing. 
course, tonight we're talking about the doorway of the heart, the kindness one. When the Buddha died, he had been attended for 20 years or so by his first cousin as his personal attendant taking care of his food and his, you know, keeping him with fresh water and washing his feet and whatever he did. I don't, can't imagine what he did, but anyway, whatever it was he did. Um, and when he died, he was so sad that he died. He loved him so much. And he kept saying over and over, right then he kept saying, he who was so kind, he who was so kind. He was his closest companion for all this time. And he was brilliant, and he was wise, and he was balanced and calm and everything. But the piece that Ananda kept saying was that one. That's where he was so touched. So we can't separate out kindness from wisdom. In wisdom, in Vipassana practice, in wisdom practices, we see the impersonality. We see um, the common uh, truths, for instance, that everything's changing. We see that things aren't the separate things that they appear to be. They're the result of forces having contributed to them, and they become forces contributing to the ongoing unfolding of the mystery of life. Nothing can stand alone. That includes you, yourself, and that sense that you're separate. It isn't actually so. It's a way we perceive that's erroneous and limited. And wisdom practices reveal this. Also, they reveal our, um, our behaviors, And then when we do love practices, meta practices, we see our behaviors in terms of our separate sense of self. There's some kind of comforting in doing this kind of practice rather than taking ourselves apart kind of practices. In fact, many times for many people at different times in their lives, to do wisdom practices which reveal, for instance, how basically insecure we all are, and that we're all sentenced to death, and we have no idea when or the manner of our death. That's a pretty heavy sentence. And that's pretty shaky. And and that we're actually very tender, and we're very sensitive, and yet we're bombarded constantly by completely unpredictable forces, and often unpleasant ones. And so it's a very tricky state that we live in. There's also incredible beauty and great surprise and so on and wonder. But it's a very delicate situation that we find ourselves in. And so to actually do wisdom practices which reveal the insecurity can sometimes actually be not appropriate at all. And we need more the practices which develop the sense of joy and the sense of connection and love, which we do here. So very often this is not just another interesting way towards freedom, it's actually essential. So compassion, any of the heart aspect of this, but I'm going to move towards compassion in this this talk. Compassion, it isn't just caring. It's caring that has this quality of um, a quivering quality because of the poignancy of our delicate situation. Because life is so fragile and unpredictable, And because there is this 
risk in in even speaking the truth to somebody because it's, it's a delicate situation. Compassion has this flavor of great tenderness because of that. So it's a very it's a very large. I think of it as a big thing. Compassion, I think of as a as a vast capacity to care with all of everything that can happen. Before I go further into it, there's a few things that I want to also just add on to what the others have been saying in terms of general meta. One of the um, things, and many of you know, and we know that we as soon as we begin to practice, begin to see this. But uh, as we have survived as human beings, after the big shift that happened when we discovered agriculture, and therefore we were able to sit and become contemplatives, and, um, and we began to uh, develop language, and then the prefrontal cortex of our brains began to take off, and then words and everything took over, we began to discover we could actually predict we could plan, plant foods for next spring, you know, to like carry us through drought. We started to feel like we had some dominion over the otherwise very unpredictable experience of being a human being on the planet. And with that, we began to develop this, this capacity to want the stuff that we thought would be helpful and to not want the stuff that we thought would be a problem. So this pursuing and avoidance behavior began, and it has been growing exponentially ever since, for 12,000 years or whatever it's been. And so we have come to really believe completely that that is the best way to do it, and that we can pursue that which we think will make us happier, healthier, safer, more comfortable, beautiful, whatever, and we can avoid the pitfalls. And the thing is, we can a lot, and it works pretty well. And so we have overrun the planet. We're so successful at it. But the trouble is, it's only so successful. It isn't ultimately successful because there are all the things that happen that, we, that are beyond that. So even though we, you know, we choose, we think we're choosing things and we're going to have the career we want or the partners we want or the friends or the body and all the rest of it, it keeps on misbehaving. And we keep humbly discovering that it isn't quite the way I want it. So then what happens is, with our arrogance, is we then try all the harder to make it more the way we want it. So we end up expending huge amounts of energy, always trying to rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic, right? And that's what we spend our time doing. And when you sit down here and you you just come and settle down and start to watch yourself, unless you're very disciplined at your concentration practice where you're not doing that, that's what you're doing. So it's not bad that we do it, but it's what we do. We don't just avoid and pursue things, we focus so much on the things that we're avoiding or pursuing that we depend on them completely to be okay. We even define ourselves by them, you know. You know, this one who has this and this and this, and that one who doesn't have those and those and those things. We've, we've, we've made the objects of our, and the circumstances of our lives the significator in, in our well-being. We've become dependent on these things, which we think we can arrange and put them all in order and look good by, only to find that we keep failing.
right? So this is a predicament we're in. It's called objectification, one way of describing it, right? So we're not very independent. And the Buddha taught us this radical teaching. It's so simple and it's so radical. Instead of depending upon your circumstances and these objects that you are looking towards to pursue and to avoid to your happiness, look at yourself. Learn instead accommodation rather than rearrangement. And if we learn to be less dependent on the stuff which we can only so far rearrange and organize and control, then we won't be so thrown about by it when it doesn't do what we want it to do. We will have our own inner stability, therefore. That's what we mean by disenchanted. When we're enchanted, we're caught up in depending on these various changing circumstances which are completely beyond our control. We're kidding ourselves or fooling ourselves that we can sort it out. But don't we spend our lives going, if only I, and just as soon as I'm around the next corner and I get this next task complete, then then it'll be heaven. But we never get around the next corner. Or as soon as we do this, yet another one. Endless, endless, endless. It's sort of futile. It's kind of embarrassing when you sit there and you... you (laughs) Haven't I figured it out yet? (laughs) But because our whole wiring, as we've developed as humans, has done this, and our whole culture, and anyone who's what the Buddha called an uninstructed worldling, (laughs) believes is that's the way it is. And so we just keep on doing it, because that's all we know how to do. And one of the things I love about the teachings of the Buddha are that that isn't bad and that isn't wrong. It's just that we don't realize. We're just ignorant. We're poor little things doing the best we can. And it works fairly well. So um, as... uh, Donald mentioned this morning, we were having actually quite some fun at breakfast about, he was discussing, we sort of say, what are we going to talk about today and what needs to be addressed? And we always have these little conversations when we get together. And so we were talking about miscellany of notes, you know, complaining about some of the objects around you that people were depending upon to make themselves happy, as he mentioned already. And we started talking about um, our own experiences as yogis, practitioners, and, uh, and the various challenges that we all experience. And it, we, we, started, we got into this thing where we were competing with each other for being at the most difficult retreats possible. <laughs> and so I was saying, you know, how hard it was one time I was at IMS, this place in Massachusetts, and they were rebuilding the stone wall outside and bre- banging and hammering and breaking the stone to build the wall. And, and Trudy says, that was nothing. She says, I was there when they were like digging up the whole roadway to put in the, the water mains. And then Donald comes up with, oh, that's nothing compared to... And then we started... <laughs> competing. There was a retreat at at, um, Cloud Mountain, a place near Portland, where the beginning of the retreat, it was a nine-day retreat, and the beginning, the first day, it went on for nine days, they cut down the forest that was right next door. (laughs) So all day long, it's chainsaws. (laughs) That's pretty challenging. And then I remember reading an early, early in my practice that Ramdas, and some of you oldies will know who Ramdas is, um, began his first meditation experiences with a group of others in a little room in somewhere in New York, right up above a fire hall. <laughs> and every time they met, they, you know, at least three or four times, there was the sirens and the whole drama, and that was where they began their meditation. It was like, 
And then my, one of my, to top everybody, I thought, was um, I went off to uh, Burma a few years ago, three years ago or something now, and um, I had such a difficult time for the first few days. I'm not an experienced traveler for one thing. Um, I was in India as a young, 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 young uh, devotee, and, um, but it was all very luxurious where I was taken care of. Anyway, so here I am at this monastery in, uh, in Burma, and it's November, and it's still pretty darn hot. And I don't know about how to put the mosquito net down before the mosquitoes get into the room and tuck it <laughs> under your bed. So I dropped it when it got dark and trapped all the mosquitoes that were in the room in with me, you know. And, um, you know, they burn. They sweep all the falling leaves and burn them, but they burn whatever other garbage they want to. And the burn pile was right outside pretty my window, and they burn the plastic bags and whatever tires they find, whatever, you know. And it's hot, 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 sweating, sweating, and bugs. And, uh, and then the radios come in, you know, some, not every night, but often they'll come on about 3.30, 4 in the morning, because in those countries it's so hot in the middle of the day, everyone's up early in the morning. And then the radios... Out of great generosity, they put them on f- as loud as they possibly can for their neighbors who don't have radios. And so very loudly, traveling, oh, a mile at a time, you know, you either hear one of three things. You hear Buddhist chanting in thoroughly unmelodious chant, but nevertheless, it's the refuges and precepts, or it's some party political general with some kind of hype, or it's music. But then music is a very subjective thing, isn't it? <laughs> One after the other, loud. So you're awake and you're hot and it's stinking and then it's, you know, not very clean, flies on the food. I mean, endless. And I was like, I had made the mistake to bring with me my um, Lonely Planet Guide. (laughs) Lonely Planet Guide to Burma. And so I'm reading about these other places up in the hills where it's cool and beautiful, you know, how they travel. And so I decided to leave. And plus, in this particular monastery, there was talking. So you could talk if you chose to talk. The teaching was, well, if you want to talk, why would you want to talk? So get to know why you're talking. Not don't talk and don't think about it, but wake up and realize why. So people are talking. They're talking in the meditation hall, you know. So I was like, I don't think I can do this practice. I can't stand this here. So I I spoke to the interpreter to get get a message to the side or to ask for a meeting to give my respects and give my dana and leave. And, uh, and she was so lovely, and she understood. She said, I hadn't slept, you know, I was really uncomfortable. I was exhausted. The dogs were howling. I mean, it just went on and on. And, and then um, and she said, I understand, I understand. And then she said, can I just ask you a question? And I said, yeah, she was lovely. And she said, do you think it's possible to be, you know, when it's dirty and you're sweaty and you're tired and the mosquitoes and the smells and all the noise, and it, do you think it's possible with all of that to be free? <laughs> Um, why did I go to Burma? (laughs) I supposed to be teaching this stuff? I was completely dependent on the circumstances to be a little better so that I could practice. Anyway, I went around a corner after that. I stayed for five weeks. Um, Some of you may know that um, Gurdjieff, the teacher Gurdjieff, there was a company of people living with Gurdjieff, his groupies, and there was somebody there at some point who was um, really, really a challenging person, really difficult person. And everybody hated him and drove them all crazy. And finally, the guy left. And um, what a great relief. And so Gurdjieff goes off and took some time and went tracking the guy down, went all the way to Paris, paid the guy money to bring him back to make him stay, just for the benefit of everybody's... (laughs) 
So we started laughing this morning saying, we've been paying the people who are sniffing and, and snoring. And <laughs> we're trying to help you wake up. <laughs> it's not true. Okay, so with meta, um, there are two... <laughs> Let's get serious now. There are two sort of aspects to this practice as we practice it here. And one of them is the one that we've been in, enjoining you enthusiastically to participate in, and that is the concentration aspect. This stay with it and keep going and repeat and repeat. This is for the benefit and for the point of concentration, to develop this ability of our minds to stay put, to do what we want them to do, to look at this or look at that or open to this or zero in on that. In other words, to be a very fine instrument. Untrained, they cannot do that. They're all over the place, as you know. And so this is a very essential component of any form of meditation. We can do it with any object. The Buddha taught 40 different methods to do this. Saying phrases is a great one. Candles are fine. Dismembering the body and your mind into 32 component parts is fine. Sitting in a cemetery in India and watching bodies decompose is fine. There's many ways. This is just one way. There's another aspect to... <laughs> Stop laughing. There's another aspect to this meta practice, which um, is not just the, the concentration aspect. It's the, it's the actual experience of being tender-hearted, of being among friends, of feeling at ease, joyful, as we're feeling right now, for instance, feeling available, the not being guarded and worried and unworthy and closed off that we so often feel. It's, a, it's a, an experience. It's an expression of being, feeling good. This is also metta. So um, it isn't just the concentration aspect. That is of absolute essential value in meditation practice. But the thing about metta as a, as a concentration technique is we have a double whammy. We have both the ability to stabilize the mind which we need so that it can become more steady and then understand and see clearly. But what we're steadying it with is the most beautiful aspects of what's possible for us as human beings. So it's extremely profound as a, a, a practice technique, unbelievably valuable. But make sure that you develop both equally and it isn't just concentration. If it's just ticker tape phrases and with no development of, the, of tuning into connecting to this friendly part of ourselves, we're not getting as much benefit as it's possible to get. But by spending all the time trying to make it feel as juicy and good as possible, we're not getting the benefit of concentration either. And so both are part of how we do this. Another thing to say, and these are just a few little pieces I wanted to contribute to our understanding, um, is that meta-ness, the feeling of kindness and friendliness, I like myself, at the moment anyway, I like the word friendliness, as I've used that more than any other word, often translated as loving-kindness. Um, 
It has, it's, uh, a, there is a continuum of intensity, all of which are meta. So, for instance, you can have like really very powerful, moving, emotional, dramatic, juicy experiences which are loving and meta, which aren't, which aren't to do with attachment. They're not to do with the worldly desire, but, it, but that profound feeling of unity and connection. It can be awesome and very intense. And you can have a cooler degree of that, where there's more of a sense of, of um, friendliness and easy sort of natural normalcy. Like when you're with, as I was saying for those of you who are here today, um, with a dear friend, when you're with a good friend, there is the absence of angst. That struggle and self-concern and trying to look good and prove something and you know the neediness or the things where we're shrinking, they're not there when we're comfortably with a dear friend. That is as much meta as some more, what we think of as, you know, intense kind of level of it. And even cooler, we can feel, um, as Sylvia said earlier, we don't actually have to like people to be able to wish them meta. The, the meta aspect, the, the part we experience, is the ability to allow it to be as it is, to let this person be that way. It's a meta heart that is open and non-resistant, um, non-in conflict. It's non-aggressive or critical. It may not love it, but it's not in argument at all. It's not up against anything. That's as meta, it's as pure a meta as the others. And even less, it's still meta when things are difficult, when things are unpleasant or people are being unpleasant. To be able to not get into reaction and resistance and negativity and remain patiently open, that's also meta. So don't go chasing the most profound, juiciest, loving and think that's matter and the rest isn't working. Because it's so easy for us to judge. Because, of course, we fall into the, the mode with which we're wired as humans, seeking and pursuing that which we think is good and avoiding that which we think isn't. And so we can get, get into this looking for and hoping for really what we think of as juicy type of meta, mistaking that matter. That's only one particular experience which happens sometimes, which actually we can't control. So be warned of that. Now, uh, um, Donald was saying last night, his great talk, he was talking about how uh, it sort of the imperceptibly sneaks up on you. You just mind your own business, do your practice, and then someday, surprisingly, it seems, there's this little like, and he had that experience of, I love you. Remember that? Um, and I didn't have that. <laughs> <laughs> so don't expect it. When we say something nice, then don't just think, oh, I have to have that too, and then it's working for me. It's different for all of us. And uh, just briefly, I just want to mention some of my experience with this because um, I actually had huge aversion to meta for a very long time. I couldn't connect with it. Every time it was suggested, I would throw up great numbers of resistance and aversions and criticisms, and it was just really a struggle for me. It took a very long time before I was able to let it in and, and give myself to the practice and then get the benefits. Um, and I'll just mention some of those barriers, cause, just to reassure you, because some of you may have them. First of all, it was suggested, and when I learned it, it was when it was first introduced, introduced and it was not with great um, 
what can I say, skill. I wouldn't say it's unskillfully offered, but there wasn't many options. It was just this one way, and that one way didn't work for me because it was first start with yourself. Well, I couldn't. I just went right into unworthiness. I went right into, like, I didn't actually like myself. As soon as I thought about myself, I would be down on myself. I was just so critical and always frustrated and just judged myself so much, and it was impossible. So then, then a teacher would say, well, then go to the next category, benefactor. Well, that was hopeless. I didn't have any benefactors. You know, I actually didn't have a very happy childhood, and my grandmother was awful. <laughs> and my other one was dead, you know. <laughs> and any such people, they, didn't, they just weren't there as in my childhood. It just didn't have that kind of thing. So for the elder type of wise teacher, forget it. You know, some frustrated spinsters at a boarding school didn't really qualify. So. <laughs> So that was no good. And so then it was like, and then say these particular words. Well, I'm a bit rebellious, and uh, I didn't like to say those words. <laughs> but I wasn't given license to say my own words, so that was pretty frustrating. So I'd try and say the words, but they didn't really work for me. And so I didn't feel good about that. What else were some of my problems? <laughs> um, Anyway, never mind. If I think of them, I'll tell you. But um, those were the main ones that gave me difficulty initially. Anyway, I sort of accidentally fell upon Meta because the wise teacher didn't use the M word. And so she just, she just was allowing me to be with the struggle that I was with in relationship with my son who was growing up and not meeting me anymore. And so I was sort of in grief about that even though I was finally able to take a 6 weeks retreat. I couldn't do that before. He was old enough, so now I was missing him. And so she was very supportive and, and gave me great um, license to be loving my son and go through that process you know, fully and not feel that I was, it was getting in the way of my practice. And, of course, that was meta, but she didn't say it was. Anyway, as I was able to discover that my benefactor was my now-growing son when he was two... And the benefactor was the one who allowed me to actually love and realize, of course, I was a loving person and a kind person and a good mother and so on. My first experience where it sort of came back to me, like, you know, Donald's I love you, um, I was on a retreat and I was doing walking meditation and I definitely wasn't doing metta. And um, I was just walking. And um, suddenly this voice, this little either, you know, being quiet or being doing my breathing or my walking or else down on myself, was just so sweet. And it was like, you know, Heather, you're doing okay. You're actually really quite nice. You, know? <laughs> you have decent friends. You're doing a good job. You know, you, ca- you have a right livelihood that helps people. You know, and considering da-da-da-da-da-da, you could have been a lot worse off. It was just this little friendly, it wasn't phrases. It wasn't, it was completely, you know, just like your friend giving you a pep talk. And it went on and on and on and on for like the whole walking period. It was great. It was the first time I consciously in my life was nice to myself. It was wonderful. And what was really wonderful was then when I went and sat, my mind was so serene because I was so reassured. You know, I was so befriended and I felt so peaceful that my mind just settled so easily. It was beautiful. So... All of this is to say that the actual practice of metta is an art and we have to find our own way and the ways that work for us without getting lost in the endlessly trying to make it perfect 
dangers, which I've already mentioned, but still to be able to feel your way into uh, the practice in a way that, that uh, you can connect with. And I know people with all different little styles. When Trudy and I, who were in the same teacher training, um, with our other six trainees, we spent the day with Sylvia one day. And of course, we talked about metta. And Sylvia said to us, so what do you do? What are your phrases? And so we all shared with each other our phrases. Do you remember this day? <coughs> and two of us, one man and one woman, they stood up individually because we were sharing them. And when it got to their turn, and she just sang this beautiful song. I couldn't believe it. Her matter was this lovely singing thing. And he was kind of like, what do you do with a jolly sailor? <laughs> remember that? <laughs> he had this kind of like swashbuckling, you know. <laughs> and I thought, how original, you know. <laughs> I don't even have words, really. Mine is, is much more the, um, I feel trusting goodness. It's, it doesn't even have lots of words. It's just a feeling. It's just very right in the sort of feeling part of me. And a feeling of calm, feeling of tenderness feeling of ease. So I'll just say trusting, and then I'll say uh, calm and peaceful, and then I'll say warm and tender, and then free and easy, and I just do those. And I don't want the words, but other people, if they did that, they, without the words, they, they get completely lost and they actually need, need the words. And so anyway, just to say it is an art. And then one other thing, and then I'm going to, I promise you, go to uh, compassion, which is what I'm supposed to be talking about, <laughs> is um, to reassure you, it's fine to take Vipassana breaks. <laughs> there are times when it just is enough already, and you just would like to just rest in the quiet of being present. Don't not feel your heart. Be conscious of the tenderness that you're generating, but... Taking Vipassana breaks is reasonable, just as with Vipassana retreat, to take some time in metta is, is very helpful. And then the final little tip I want to say before moving on is that all these, we all have our different ways, and I'm not offering my suggestions here as a way to confuse you, because it being an art, I wanted to share some of the things which have been helpful, um, but we are offering them in, in the spirit of a smorgasbord, not like a 15-course dinner. You know. So you don't have to take every course. You just take the pieces which, for you, you find useful. And so ignore lots of it and take the pieces that work for you. Compassion. Compassion is this tenderness and this friendliness and this openness and this being available to connect with what's difficult. Loving-kindness is the tenderness and the friendliness and being with. Compassion is when it's hard. And I know we've talked quite a bit about it on this retreat, but um, I want to contribute some because I've just been in a very challenging year in my own life. And so um, every year I take the month of November for my own month of practice. And this November, which feels very close still, was very, very challenging 
And really, my whole retreat was about compassion. And so it's fresh for me, and I want to share some of why and how it worked and how it works. (coughs) Normally, I tend to talk more about joy and things. When we, going back to that evolutionary aspect, when we uh, have, you know, having evolved as we have as humans and this ability to um, pursue and avoid the things that we think will make us happy and feel better, we do this, of course, with when it's difficult. And what we do is we, um, in the unskilled way that we, when we're not trained, we focus on the problem. It takes our attention and we give our attention to it and we define ourselves by it and we tell that story and we feel the feeling and we get consumed in that. Or, and, what we add to that is the uninstructed worldlings fix-it mentality. I want it not to be that way and so then we do a whole lot of addition to the struggle, whatever the struggle is, it may be worry, it may be fear, it may be unworthiness or sadness or grief or anything, we add strategies on top. Strategies like blaming, for instance, or shame, or planning, or um, explanation, or justification, or resolutions all in the name of trying to feel better, and it's not bad that we do that. But what we are doing by doing that is trying all the time, is efforting to not let it in. We're trying to fix it. And of course we're trying to fix it, because it's horrible and we want to feel better. And so it's reasonable that we do. But we're using this old strategy that we've owned, the only one we have, to try and make ourselves feel better. We do things also, of course, we, we deny things and we pretend it isn't so. We project onto others our problems. We assuage our feelings by going to the fridge again and again or going to the TV or going shopping or somehow filling up the hole with something else, as we all know. We also, we also have this fear that when something's unpleasant, it's not just that we're trying to avoid it, Underneath that, we have a deep fear that it will master us and it will somehow overwhelm us. So especially with strong states, you know, of of, uh, pain or loss or fear, we're scared of them, deeply scared of them. We don't have confidence that we can handle them. And so because we've done the strategy of trying to avoid all the time, we haven't learned the strategy of allowing And we are relatively privileged, I would just say, not just relatively, hugely privileged in our Western society because we can. I mean, lots of pain, we just go to the drugstore, right? Um, And we can fire things and change things and switch channels and we can eat what we want. We have so much choice that we're really um, cajoled into believing that we can somehow avoid it. So we try all the harder. And therefore, we're more afraid. People who've had to live in more challenging circumstances have a much greater capacity to suffer because they are used to doing it. They've learned that life does go on anyway. And we really haven't learned so well. We also try very hard to avoid those things. And 
you know, put the ill people away and the, and the people who would disturb society away, and so we don't have to deal with it. And what we do, and we can watch it from meditators' point of view, when we're confronted with some problem, is this adding behavior, this strategizing that this ego person does, um, are called the hindrances, which Trudy was talking about. These hindrances of not liking this or wanting that or getting all upset and squirmy about this or spacing out and getting dull because we don't want to think about it or doubting ourselves. I don't know if this is okay. What should I do? I don't know what to do now. All of those are the hindrances. And that's what we do when we're having a hard time. Any one or several of those hindrances. They're on top of already the difficult experience, whatever that is. So we now have a double dart. The Buddha called it two darts. There's the dart of the struggle, whatever the thing is that's happening that we can't control. And then there's how we react to it. We don't want it. We don't like it. We're scared of it. So we, we, we suffer doubly. All in attempts to feel better. So it's kind of tragic. It's poignant. And the thing about this practice, it's so brilliant, it takes away the second dart. It helps us to see how we're struggling with already enough of a problem. We don't need to make it worse. It doesn't help. We can't believe that it doesn't help because that's all we've done, but it doesn't help. All those strategizers, all that aversion, all that judgment doesn't help. It's worse. So the radical teachings of the Buddha were instead of looking at the problem and adding all this stuff onto it, is look at how you feel. Or when you feel sad, you don't want to look at how you feel and feel sad. That's why it's so radical and hard to do. We don't believe that the way to freedom is through the pain. We do not believe it, but that's the truth of it. And when we can allow ourselves to be with whatever it is that's assailing us, what we discover is it isn't as bad as we thought it was going to be. It's just yucky. And we didn't drown. In fact, it's less yucky. It lessens. It doesn't lessen. What happens is our ability to be there grows. And we discover we aren't drowning. So the practice is this one of letting it in. Another word is accommodating. I had these two members of my family, completely un, not unrelated to each other because we're all in the same family, but um, the two situations had nothing to do with each other, both very difficult, two people going through really, really horribly complicated, difficult situations. And I was their close family member and therefore involved, and one had to be very involved with trying to help solve some of these ongoing, very complicated, very, very horrible, sad, difficult, yucky situations which I did relatively well and occasionally didn't. Occasionally would just not be able to stand it and would just get frustrated or get disappointed. Or... And so it wasn't just that it was nothing to do with me and I was witnessing it. I was embroiled and, and involved and exhausted and, and frustrated and so on. 
And so when it came to November, I was really looking forward to a nice, quiet break. Well, I didn't get that because, of course, what was in my life and what was in my mind and what was in my heart was all of this stuff that doesn't just leave you. And, uh, and so I sat with a lot of pain, a lot of, a lot of um, disappointment and a lot of frustration uh, and a lot of uh, compassion, a lot of worry and, you know, some fear and uh, was able to see, which I can't, we can't see when things are okay. We, we only learn certain things when we face the difficulty that I got to actually, it was very humbling, and I got to see how deeply entrenched is that habit to fix and how these things were way beyond my ability to fix. And I had been trying all year to fix them, every day, hours a day, with all kinds of people and, and running myself ragged and being helpful and kind. All, it was all useful and good stuff, except when I lost my patience. But the problems are ongoing and way beyond mine to fix. They're not mine anyway. And they're certainly not mine to fix. And I learned more than I ever have, ever, that um, it's possible to be okay in the midst of stuff that I never would have thought I could handle. And it's possible to handle it. The experience, interestingly, in, in I, have my, I feel my life in my body energetically quite a lot. And so I have this experience of my stomach becoming huge. And as though I can swallow anything you give me now. Whereas before, there was a sense of tension in here that I didn't know was there. I touched it a little bit. That as soon as something came at me that I couldn't swallow, like metaphorically swallow, I wouldn't. But this was unavoidable. It was close in my life, in my intimate members of my family, and it was in me. And my ability to allow it to be here and to live there with it grew exponentially. And because of my practice, both my Vipassana practice and my meta practice, I didn't add the hindrances. I did not then justify, blame, hardly at all. So compassion is translated as calm with passion, feeling, feeling with without anything else. So it's not a doing practice. It's a not doing practice. It's allowing yourself to feel fear and not do anything about it. But let it be here and not close down and not anything. That's so against our strategizing to fix that it's so radical, it's so hard to do. But with gentleness, we can. And metta itself, when we're having a hard time, metta to ourselves is a reassurance. It soothes us. It's like, it's okay. You're okay. You're doing okay. It's tough. It's tough. You know, times are difficult sometimes. You're going to be all right. It's the reassur- It's like the friendly mum to the little crying child. And that, it's a soother. It's a lullaby. It's, it's like, I love you anyway even though sometimes you blow it, they blow it. It's beyond our control. It's this friendly yes. You know, when a kid is crying, you know, you don't say, come on, get over it. 
at least, you know, that's not the ideal response, you know. It's like, oh, that's so hard, you've hurt your toe, you know. It's friendly, and it's like, yeah, actually, that's what happens. It's just that. And we need that when facing the, the, the problems that arise. We need that, because it's so hard to face them and let them be here. So we need the strength and the, the gentleness and the non-judgmental approach that we gain through the practice here to be able to meet these strangers that we, you know, we would rather not meet. May Sarton, I'd never heard of her. My, sent, my friend sent me this little poem. Help us to be the always hopeful gardeners of the spirit who know that without darkness nothing comes to birth as without light nothing flowers. It's about the eight vicissitudes. I've taught about the eight vicissitudes. I've said many a time there aren't just four vicissitudes, there are eight, pleasure and pain, gain and loss. But boy, did I learn that one. Talk about, you know, swallow your own medicine this year. It's like, yeah, I had some, you know, really deeply, of course we all have, believed that there should be only four vicissitudes. And that if I work hard enough and, you know, I'm clever enough and then we'll be able to get over those other four ones. But you know, that's not the way it is. There are eight. The way of love is not a subtle argument. The door there is devastation. Birds make great sky circles of their freedom. How do they learn it? They fall, and falling are given wings. That's Rumi. So we find our own way through all of it, the ups and the downs. I'll talk next time a little more about the other vicissitudes, the the four up vicissitudes. But, you know, we find our way to deal with the difficult things. These are the challenges of life. These are what we really came to retreat for. This is really what we're learning. Why did we all come to a spiritual path? Because we were so darn happy? (laughs) We actually want help, you know, because it's hard. How, you know, how do we develop ability to stay buoyed up when it's, you know, when it's scary and so on? And so uh, it's, it's so, it works. But we do less. We don't do more. We do less. It's, it's what we do is the ego-bound, striving person trying to fix things that's the problem. And the ability to see that that's just extra and exhausting and futile even then we, we see how much we do it and we catch ourselves doing it and that's how it's able to be released because we feel the stress. And as we release it and do less, we feel in fact freer and much more buoyant. It's a very peculiar irony. The near enemies of compassion are not the pure thing. But of course we tend to them because of our wiring. The near enemy of compassion, well two are the typical, but they, they can be different things. But the favorite one that's described is pity. When you pity somebody who's suffering or pity yourself, like, oh, woe is me, oh, it's so awful, that's actually not compassionate because it's still aversive. It's still wishing it were different. Or, um, you know, it's like, as long as, you know, the, it's a kind of distancing yourself from the person. If you pity somebody, it's kind of like diminishing them and hoping that you don't catch it. 
You know, there's a definitely a pulling away from. It's not that real becoming one with. It's feeling for somebody, not feeling with somebody. Subtle. And another one is um, forbearance, tolerance. Well, tolerance is actually compassion, but it doesn't mean um, gritting your teeth. <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean like, I'm going to tough it out till it's over and hate it. So it's not that, it's not, um, that aversive. Resignation or endurance, it's not. That's the negative state of it. It's being able to tolerate it and be okay, really, really okay, even though it's difficult. Anybody heard of Jill Bolte-Taylor, the stroke of insight? A few of you have. A neurosurgeon who had this uh, stroke on her left hemisphere of her brain. You can see her on the TED Talks or uh, you can YouTube her. and She has a book, very interesting, very interesting, from a neuroanatomist point of view about the functioning of the brain and the different hemispheres and what they govern. I won't go into it tonight because um, time is, is passing, but she, um, because she'd had this stroke and it impaired her left hemisphere very powerfully, but not at all her right, she was very present and aware, but she couldn't speak, for instance. Um, and she wrote this book, and she's motivated to teach what it's like for people who have had strokes for the caregiver's sake and for anyone's sake so we could be prepared. But one of the things she said, which is the point I want to make, is that um, in the state when she, before she, she recovered, it took a long time, but she fully recovered, but before she was, when she was still very much under the effects of it, um, and people would come to her, various physicians and caregivers would come, deal with her, everyone had different abilities and capacities to relate. And when they had compassion for her situation, they were able to relate with her, even though she couldn't understand and they couldn't say, they could still touch her, the way their body language was, the way they approached her, held her in their heart. She could completely get it. She couldn't hear anything they would say and it made any sense to her, but she could feel completely how they felt towards her. And she could feel completely when they would say things, but they actually were really uncomfortable and they didn't really, they didn't have the space to be with her. They did not have compassion. Or they did. She, and she totally could sense it. Of course, we all can that. It's just an interesting way she describes it with the different faculties of the brain. Mm. So I guess the last thing I want to then say is that as we do our practice, really what I believe we're doing in this meta practice, as well of course as developing concentration and learning uh, these beautiful phrases, inclining our minds and hearts towards the potential of a free human being, possible for all of us, thinning the clouds. I love that phrase. There's another phrase I love, which is discovering our original brightness, which of course is shrouded by this ego and all of its attempts to fix things. What we're really doing is simply discovering the language of having a heart and knowing our experience of life via this organ. Sylvia often calls it the climate of the heart. What's the climate of your heart? So we become familiar with this organ, this part of ourselves that has the capacity to relate and to connect and to feel and to allow, and to allow in or to be guarded. We're not getting anything other than what is already who we are, as Donald explained to us. But what we're learning is 
to become familiar with the state of the heart. And sometimes it can be very tender and very open and sometimes somewhat and sometimes it's quite guarded and quite anxious. None of that's right or wrong. It's just to know that. The same in Vipassana. It's not to be a certain way. It's to know how you are. And when we know that the heart is guarded or anxious or angry, it's less likely to be so because it's conscious and we know the pain of it. But if we don't know the language of our heart, we can't feel how it is, how can we heal it? How can we understand it? And so this experience of these, these beautiful phrases and this tuning in in this way, is, it's like learning a language. It's becoming familiar with this part of us which we need to be familiar with if we want to be realized beings. Because when we are, it's open. And it can be a way that just reveals in a second when we're familiar how free or not free in that moment we are. And it's such a beautiful capacity that we all have. And some have more uh, easily access to it than others. And this is developing that access. We always like to end in beautiful poems to send you off with elegance. Once we realize that the nature of our existence is beyond thought and emotions, that it is incredibly vast and interconnected with all other beings, the separation and fear and hope all fall away. It's a tremendous relief. That's Dogen. And um, there's a book that um, three of us uh, have just been reading it's a new, a new book from a f- French author and we're th- all thoroughly enjoying called The Elegance of the Hedgehog don't know if anyone's read it but it's beautiful I'm going to read a little from this it's just about the metaness of, of friendliness every time it's a miracle here are all these people full of heartache and hatred or desire and we all have our troubles and the school year is filled with vulgarity and triviality and consequence And here are all these teachers and kids of every shape and size. And there's this life we're struggling through, full of shouting and tears and laughter and fights and breakups and dashed hopes and unexpected luck. It all disappears, just like that, when the choir begins to sing. Everyday life vanishes into song. You're suddenly overcome with a feeling of brotherhood, of deep solidarity, even love. And it diffuses the ugliness of everyday life into a spirit of perfect communion. Even the singer's faces are transformed. It's no longer so-and-so or so-and-so or so-and-so. I see human beings surrendering to music. Every time it's the same thing, I feel like crying. My throat goes all tight and I do the best I can to control myself. Sometimes it gets close. It's too beautiful. And everyone singing together, this marvelous sharing... I'm no longer myself. I'm just one part of a sublime whole to which the others also belong. And I always wonder at such moments why this cannot be the rule of everyday life instead of being an exceptional moment during a choir. When the music stops, everyone applauds, their faces all lit up, the choir radiant, it's so beautiful. In the end, I wonder if the true movement of the world might not be a voice raised in song. Let's sit quietly.
thank you for your attention. I'm sorry I made you sit there so long. I have a hard time not talking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.